Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Welcome to the Story Paths podcast. I'm Theodore Lowry. And today we're going to have a short solo episode about personification. In this case, the personification of European religion into a single individual, conceiving that large group with all the history as a single being, and conceiving European science coming from that religious tradition in some ways as another single being and considering what the relationship is with each other. So I like to generalize. I like to generalize entire groups of people and consider them to be like one person. The country of India as a being, the country of Canada as one person, the country of the US personified as one person. Now, this kind of thinking has fallen out of favor somewhat these days. After all, a country is full of many, many distinct individuals, different from each other. How can we amalgamate them all into one mass and consider them like one person, like in some kind of editorial cartoon? However, I'd like to introduce that there are, broadly speaking, two ways of thinking about characterization that show up in stories and perhaps in life, in our worldviews. One is where you have many different characters within a story, each of which are distinct from each other, and because there are so many and the story can only hold so much, each character is relatively simple. So you have perhaps the villain, the good guy, or you could say, the old wise woman, the young naive hero, the love-struck young woman. Simple characters occupying different parts of the total possible characterization of humans. Then you can also have in stories that are zooming in more on a particular person, that within that person you have a myriad of different characters. And in psychology, it talks about different aspects of our personality. You could say different sub-personalities. In family systems therapy, for example, there's an investigation of different aspects of our being that are speaking, that are within us, 
like different people within a single person that are speaking their own perspectives on the world and have their own agendas and such. So one way you could say is external, where you have different kinds of personalities within a room, within a country, within the story, and they are distinct and they have their positions and their points of view and they interact with each other, but they're not the same person. But pretty similar actually, inside a person, inside a single person, a complex nuanced person, you'll have different aspects of the personalities uh, which have different desires and different agendas and different points of view. It sounds like multiple personality and I suppose if it goes to an extreme it's like multiple personality disorder but I think each of us have these different kinds of influences within us. The part of us that wants to keep us safe, the part of us that wants to go on adventure, the part of us that's skeptical, the part of us that wants to trust, and so on. So if we're considering a whole country, for example, as one being, this one being could be actually a one complex being. This one being can have many different points of view. This one being can have right-wing points of view and left-wing points of view, feminist and masculinist points of view. This one being can see things from different sides and in different points of time emphasize uh, per different perspectives. This one being can see things from different sides and emphasize at different times different perspectives. And so, considering a whole country, a whole religion, uh, a whole group of people as personified in a single being can actually be a pretty helpful way to begin to not understand exactly, because we don't really understand other people fully, but to conceive them or have them within our mental and emotional space so we can relate with them in a way that is easier with our limited capacity for thinking of many, many different things simultaneously. One person, one complex person that I am in relationship with. I've been reflecting on why I have this uneasy sense about the institutions of science. Not everybody does. Some people are fine with the institutions of science, that is to say, those teaching in universities on the subjects of science, those investigating theoretical science and applied science. It's all wondrous. It's a wondrous exploration of life, both small and large, into the microscopic and out into the massive universe, perceiving stars such great distances away that we're seeing now what those stars looked like millions of years ago. It's amazing. And there's something in 
the personhood of science, that is to say, not in the analytics of the study itself, but in the culture of science, if you were to consider the human body of scientists, of those interested in science, and we look at the ancestry of this human body. Now, of course, properly speaking, scientific findings have come from all over the world. And knowledge tends to collect in empires, or rather empires tend to collect knowledge, just as empires collect land and other resources. So it often seems like empires are very ingenious in all that they create with aqueducts and weaponry and different smeltings of metals and so on. And yet, if you think about it, the ingenuity, that human ingenuity that created those things, is mostly not coming from that little nucleus where the empire began, like in Rome or in Britain. Some of it is, surely, but a lot of it's being collected, collecting this human ingenuity in an exploitive way from other parts of the world. So this has happened with scientific knowledge as well. It's coming from all over the world, not just from humans, really, uh, coming in from the whole world, funneling into humans, into this growing body of scientific knowledge, which connects with technology and how technology is used and so on. So the personhood of science connected with empire, connected with European empire in particular, I'm thinking. The human body, that Western science, to put it in a simple way, that body of humanity has certain baggage, you know, comes with certain problems, as we do, as I do personally, you know, from my background and parentage and ancestry and so on. So this human body of science comes with its own baggage. And there's this element of being linked in with empire at different points, which is traumatizing and, you know, harmful. And there's also the history of European institutions of science as coming back to the church, to the Catholic church and Christianity as a whole. And the arrangement in Christianity of having those who have specialized knowledge, that would be the literate monks in the monasteries with their own language, their own jargon, and you have the common people who don't know that but who are kind of consider themselves Christian. So it's like this with science. You've got those who truly understand the language of science math, physics, chemistry, and you've got those who believe them, you know, which is, which is most of us really. So we're really involved in that study. So in Christianity, that is to say, not really the mystical side of Christianity, but in more the mainstream Christianity or the churchy, more dominating kind of Christianity, you really see a dualism. There's matter, there's spirit, there's this world, and there's heaven. 
well, you could say there's hell as well. So it's not exactly a dualism, but there's good and evil. And then there's sort of in between, which is us. And we're getting affected by both. But there's this dualism. So this is something you see a lot in the religion of Christianity. And you see it in science. There's matter and there's mind. And mind is something of an overlap with the qualities of spirit. You know, mind is invisible, mind is subtle, mind affects matter, but can't really be seen by matter. Like you can't see your mind with your eye, but you could say that your mind's looking through your eye or using spiritual language, you could say you, the spirit, are looking through your eyes, that is to say, through the eyes of your fleshy vehicle, your meat vehicle, your body. So you see this same kind of dualism. In other words, there's a intellectual inheritance that's come to science from Christianity. And of course, these early Western scientists such as Galileo were Christians. I mean, most people were in that part of the world. And, you know, saying things like the earth goes around the sun and that was considered heretical and really pounded down. So that nascent science, that you could say adolescent science in the house of father, that's the church, Christianity, that young science just starting to have wondrous ideas like maybe big paradigm shift, we orbit the sun and not vice versa. Maybe the earth isn't the center of the universe. Maybe there's all kinds of amazing things we haven't really considered, but they're all outside the theology of the father, the church. And so that son appreciates a lot of things about the church, but isn't appreciated. You know, that, that investigative spirit was pushed down in the early days of science. And perhaps, perhaps, very well perhaps, that pushing down, uh, that forced override that European religion enacted upon European science, that forced override may have caused some hurt feelings in the human body of science, the being of Western science, if you will. And so science, you know, growing up, I think science is like a young man, perhaps, pretty male-oriented, male-dominated. Uh, that young adolescent science boy got a chip on his shoulder, you know? Not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be dogmatic. I'm not going to cut things down before I really hear them. I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to see what the world says, not just what the old books that are written 2,000 years ago say. Let the world speak to me. And that will be how I read about life. Screw you, Dad, for putting me down, telling me I didn't know anything. I'll show you. So then you got science versus religion. And, you know, it's notable that this is not 
as big an issue in every part of the world as it is in the West, you know, science versus religion. The thing is that while it's understandable, you know, religion's been really dominating and all of that, that religion is not just Christianity. It's not just European. It's not just male. It's not just white. That religion, we can say of Europe, is a pond that is full of rivers coming from other lands. The Celtic, the old Celtic ways flow into Christianity, into European Christianity, flows Eastern Christianity, which is a whole different flavor. William Dalrymple writes really beautifully about that. If you're interested in an exploration of Christianity in Eastern Europe and going further east than that, where the Desert Fathers dwelled and where Christianity really originates in terms of how we know it, where Jesus or Yeshua was born, where he lived. So to throw out all of that religion, you know, to throw it all out, like some scientists attempt to do, say, you know, that was all just sort of fabrication and fantasy, and now we know better because we're enlightened, there's the enlightenment, and we've thrown out those heavy-ass superstitious ways that sometimes cause people to kill each other or go on witch hunts and other horrific things. So thank God we've grown out of that, or at least some of us have, and hopefully the rest of us get the memo that it's time for humanity to give up these old, bass awkward, superstitious ways. Understandable. It's understandable. You know, these critiques are not without merit. Not without merit. Religion, in the name of religion, certainly a lot of horrific things have happened. Although, you know, a lot of the really horrific things happen in the name of religion are mostly actually really land grabs and things like that. And it's like, let's bring God into it and justify it. These days might bring democracy into it and justify it or whatever, freedom, land grabs, oil grabs. So a lot of things happen in the name of religion. And yet, you know, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, there's a lot of old myths and ways of knowing and stories that are full of amazing patterns of teachings which have been worn over generations like river stones, the bottom of a river rolling, rolling, rolling until they're so essential and so full of life. And a lot of those weren't really part of the big church. They're more rolling along with the housewives and the midwives and the henwives and the kids and the ordinary men. Not the big priests and bishops and stuff who are doing their Latin thing and, you know, giving their sermons and telling it how it is. And meanwhile, you got your folk. You got your folk and they're, they're Christian, sure. But what's Christian? It's a lot of different rivers flowing into the same pond. So they got all their folk tales and their, you know, festivals that were originally pagan that they're still celebrating and they kind of got Christianity grafted on top and they're 
good with all that and they're chanting their rosary beads, you know. Reading a great book about uh, rosary chanting now by Clark Strand and Perdita Finn called The Way of the Rose. And they're really talking about there how folky, how earthy, how goddessy in the best possible use of the word <laughs> the rosary really is and was. So this kind of folk Christianity is going on as well. And there's a lot of rich hummus soil going on there. There's a lot of really fertile soil in there that's been, like they say in South America, terra preta, if I'm saying it right, black soil, dark black fertile soil in the mythic, mythic soil of Europe, you know, that's mixed in with Christianity. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. And of course, in the rest of the world as well. But I'm just focusing for this about European religion, European science, as it were. Understanding that these boundaries are totally porous. So, I'm watching a documentary now called Universe. It's a BBC documentary. And Brian Cox is the presenter. And I have to say, I really like it. I like that he compares stars to gods. These beings that live for billions of years and generate tremendous amounts of light. And when they die, when they die, they implode and then explode and they spray elements throughout the universe. As they implode, the simpler elements of hydrogen, oxygen, they compress and compress and compress. And you get all up the periodic table, you get all the more complex elements. And then the star explodes and these complex elements spray everywhere, including our humble home. That's a humble, wondrous home. Planet, Earth, Gaia, as we call her. Hmm. So I like this comparison of stars to gods. This is a beautiful overlap of science and mythology. Why extract personhood from the stars or the earth? Why must science extract personhood from things? I ask. This is my complaint that I bring. Why extract personhood from the earth, from the planets? Why must everything be inert? And I suppose it's because, you know, part of the reason maybe there's some reaction to religion claiming there's a person below who's trying to tempt you with all kinds of evil. There's a person above who's judging you <laughs> really harshly if you succumb to any of that evil while doing nothing really to step uh, in between you and the evil influence, that is to say Satan. So there's God, there's the devil, there's personhood, you know, saints, all this stuff. But there's abuse of that. Wasn't done, wasn't all done right. You know, the medieval European mind was full of relations with different mythic, you could say, or religious, spiritual beings. 
especially in Catholicism, there's many, many different saints and so on, and I think a lot of them do have roots in older pagan figures that became Christianized, like Bridget, St. Bridget, this old Bridget, as Sharon Blackie discusses. So it's beautiful to allow the personhood, personhood of the universe back in. To see figures in the constellations as we do in clouds, as we make out figures in clouds, a ram, a messenger, someone lifting their little pinky finger, a horse. And we can thank, or I can thank science for this rationality and this cutting through harmful superstition. But oh, 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 I will not leave my myth. I will not leave this way of reaching in and understanding the world. I won't leave this time, time, time-tested way of relating with the spirits of the land, the sky, the waters, each other, humans. I will not remove this personhood from my conception of these beings. So, be it. Let myth and science feast together this day. Feast and be merry. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in this kind of thinking, then I'm starting some workshops soon about thinking in terms of stories, thinking in terms of characters. There's a lot of play, there's a lot of interdisciplinary activity, like moving between drawing and storytelling and singing and such. If this piques your interest, sign up for my mailing list in the show notes below, and I'll let you know when these offerings become live. If you'd like to support this podcast on Patreon, please do. It's at Story Paths on Patreon. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.